Hey everybody, this is Todd. Uh, this is podcast number 526 and we did an interview about a month ago with Dr. Dan Siegel. Uh, he's coming out with a new book called The Power of Showing Up, How Parental Presence Shapes Who Our Kids Become and How Their Brains Get Wired. Uh, it truly was an honor to be able to interview Dr. Siegel. For those of you who have been listening to the show for a while, you know that a tagline that we say at the beginning of every show is that the best predictor of a child's well-being is a parent's self-understanding. That came from Dr. Siegel. And of all the books uh, that Kathy and I have read, Dr. Siegel's is amongst the most influential in how we parent and what we talk about on this podcast. So uh, it was just a, a fun interview, and we hope you enjoy it. Uh, so without further ado, here's Dr. Dan Siegel. So um, we joining us today is Dr. Dan Siegel, who wrote a new book um, coming out January. I don't know. We'll get the date. We'll put it in the show notes. But the name of the book is The Power of Showing Up, How Parental Presence Shapes Who Our Kids Become and How Their Brain Gets Wired. And he co-authored that with Tina Payne Bryson. Um, but first, I, I, I feel the need to say that <laughs> We've been doing this podcast for nine years, nine years, and we've done over 500 episodes. And on every single one, I say this phrase, and I'm pretty sure it's yours. It's yours, and we stole it. And well, we give them credit. Yes, we, didn't we do. Steal it. We give them credit. We do give, but we don't give them credit every single time. Otherwise, it'd be a lot. Well, but we have said your name many times. Uh, the best predictor of a child's well-being is a parent's self-understanding. Did that come from you? Yes. Well, I mean, it comes from me summarizing the beautiful research of the field of attachment. Yes. That uh, is. Yes. Yes. Well, well and, thank you for that, because that's become the platform for nine years of podcasts. Is that what oh, we focus around? Yes. So it's safe to say that we agree on a lot of uh, parental issues. So and have been influenced by your work. Um, but just to jump right in, um, so obviously the foundation of the book is to, for parents to feel safe. Uh, for parents to help their kids feel safe, seen, soothed, and then if you do those things, it'll be securely attached. I did actually read the book, and I'm not a fast reader, but wouldn't you know it, I sped right through this one. So that goes to show that this is a book that anybody can read uh, very quickly. But I figure a, a good way to start is you talk about in the introduction or close to it, uh, the strange situation research study. And I'm wondering yeah. if you can share with our listeners what that is and, and why you decided to include it in your book. Sure. Well, I mean, the field in general of child development uh, has within it, you know, the field of attachment research, which is what do we know about how kids are shaped by their experiences after birth? And one of the most important things to know about that is it's, you know, aspects of your parent uh, interaction with you as a kid that shapes you. So, of course, you have your temperament that's shaped by genetics, um, but then you have your experience, which is, in the early years especially, shaped by your parents. The way the field of science that studies that looks at it is um, by first, you know, observing how children interact with their parents in the first year of life, so infancy um, and onward, and in the first year, we can observe how those patterns of communication are happening. And then we do a paradigm called the infant strange situation, which means you put a 12-month-old, more or less, in a strange situation 
where they're initially separated from their caregiver and there's a stranger in the room. Then the caregiver comes back. Then they interact and you are, you know, filming all this, taping it. Then you have the stranger and the caregiver go away. So there's no one in the room. So this goes on for about three minutes if the child can tolerate it and the parents watching this can tolerate it. Um, and then, um, then the caregiver comes back again. So it's a separation paradigm, but what you're finding in the research that's the most useful is the reunion behavior of the child interacting with this particular parent. So it's the beautiful thing about this measure from Mary Ainsworth, um, built on the work she did with John Bowlby, uh, elaborated in many ways by her graduate student, Mary Main, is to sense, <laughs> excuse me, to sense that what you're really measuring is a relationship. You're not measuring something about the child. You're measuring how this child with this parent, given their history over, in this case, one year of life, manifests in the child's way of dealing with not only the separation, but especially the reunion. And that's why you know, in the developing mind, this textbook that I'm now putting into its third edition, I thought it would be good for graduate students and undergraduates to know about the infant strain situation, then to build on that to understand what does it mean to have a secure mental model, a secure schema of attachment that manifests in certain behaviors in the infant strain situation that continues onward for the kid and in interacting with his friends, with his teachers, how she will be actually in summer camp, and then even tracing elements of it to how we act as parents or as friends or as lovers. Um, so there's some really you know, amazing longitudinal findings. Of course, everyone is open to change, but there are these general patterns that um, research suggests are um, how experience shapes not only the direct way that our brain, in a sense, um, takes in those experiences, but then how we adapt to them. Those are the two things, direct impact and adaptation. And that's what Tina Bryson uh, and I, my, my old student, who's now my colleague and co-writer, you know, what Tina Payne Bryson and I do in these books is take the, this framework of interpersonal neurobiology first presented in the developing mind and then mold it for parents to be able to access it very easily to try to put it in you know rememberable language so you can actually remember it when you're in the in the heat of parenting and that's that's what we do mm. so i have a question about cuz you're saying it's their experience and then how they adapt so that could explain why like we have three daughters they they're going to grow up in this environment maybe have similar experiences but the way they adapt to those experiences may be different so the way that they eventually see the world or experience the world could be unique, correct? They may not all have the same, um, even if we had a pretty secure attachment, the way that they experience their lives could, they could have different outcomes, correct? Absolutely. Well, I mean, here's the thing about it that's, I think the way you're saying it is so useful. You know, even if you had identical twins mm -hmm. where, you know, their genes were the same, um, each of us has a way of, you know, um, having energy flow through us, having the way we turn that into information that's unique. 
you know? And so you might say, well, the temperament is likely to be very similar if their genes are identical, which is true. There's a big genetic influence on temperament. But the way we adapt maybe uniquely our own way of, you know, basically developing personality, which is temperament plus experience. Mm. Now, the thing that gets complicated is, you know, parents can actually relate differently to different kids. And this is where it gets very subtle and, you know, from an individual point of view, very significant. So let's say, you know, you have a child who's more outgoing than another child and you yourself are outgoing and you had an image in your mind of wanting a child who's outgoing, who's going to be a big, you know, soccer player and she's going to be star of the musical and, you know, run for president or something like that. Well, those are your expectations. So you may treat your outgoing child one way, but then your child is more inwardly focused. You may get frustrated with her and irritated with her. And because perhaps you yourself weren't appreciated for who you were, you may have a feeling of being inadequate inside of you. This is where self-understanding comes in. So for the parents who may not have worked through their own issues from their childhood, they're more likely not to have what you can call parental presence. Mm -hmm. So someone with presence would say, I want to see my child exactly how she is, how he is. And if this one's more introverted, I know I may be frustrated, but I'm going to let that frustration go so I can see my child, soothe them, keep them safe, let them feel really good about who they are rather than that they're disappointing me because they're not matching my expectation. Hmm. Absolutely. So one one thing that was surprising to me in the book is at, what you said in the study was that two thirds of the parents were uh, displayed secure attachment, and one third, I think, if I got it right, um, exposed some other type of either avoidant. These are all you know categories of insecure attachment: avoidant, ambivalent, and disorganized. My the thing that I was surprised about was two thirds seemed like a really sounds pretty good. Sounds like a really high number and i just wonder if we did the same study for not the one-year-old but for the 11 year olds how many of those parents would be securely attached to their 11 year old well and it's the child being attached to them yeah. right I'm just, yeah so i just wonder it, it just seems like a high number so part a of the question is is a number really that high because if that's the case then that's pretty good and then secondly i wonder if we if there was another study how how because the, that the goal was, is yeah. for these kids to be securely attached. That's correct to their primary att attachment figure for sure. So a couple things. I mean, it's a really interesting point. First of all, you're making the issue: kids are attached to their parents. A parent is not attached to a kid, but if they are, that's a problem, mm -hmm. right? In other words, attachment is where you seek um, being seen, soothed, and safe with the attachment figure who shapes who you become. So you don't want a situation where a parent is wanting to be soothed by a kid or that the kid keeps the parent safe or the parent is expecting that they're gonna be seen by this child. So that's why we, it's an asymmetric relationship unless you're in adulthood and then you can have your significant other, both of your attachment figures for the other. Mm -hmm. But in childhood, the child is attached to the parent. Now, the way you're saying it is absolutely right. Um, some of the studies show two thirds of children 
have a secure attachment with their primary attachment figure. Other studies show it's about 55%. But either way, whether it's 55 or 66%, you know, it's the majority. Mm. And the studies pretty much across cultures show that. And now that sounds pretty good, but if you're talking about 45% of the population being not secure, you know, in the United States alone, that's like 180 million people. Yeah, that's true. So, you know, you may be really happy as I am that it's the majority, but it's not like 95% are securely attached. It's like somewhere between 66 and 55%. So that's not that... I mean, we can do better than that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I just wonder if, uh, like, is there any type of study that shows how securely attached an 11-year-old is to their parent, or this is only for one-year-olds and we just have to guess? Yeah. I just, I figured the older they get, the harder it is for the kid to be securely attached to their parent. Yeah. So the measures that they've tried to develop for five, six-year-olds and then for 11-year-olds, um, you know... As far as I know at this moment, they're just not as um, reliable from a predictive point of view. It's a complicated mm-hmm. statistical issue because as Bowlby and Ainsworth always proposed, these schema or working models of attachment are open to change. And so they change through childhood. If relationships change, um, you know, if you go through adolescence, there's a very interesting issue where um, you basically, uh, let, let's, let's use an example of a girl. Let's just call her Jane. So Jane can have a secure attachment with her mom and an insecure, let's say avoidant attachment with her dad. Mm-hmm. So this is the reason why it's important to note that even though she has one set of genes and one temperament, she can have many attachments. That is an attachment that's secure, insecure, avoidant. And let's say a grandmother takes care of her too, because we have this thing called allo parenting, where allo means other and parenting is the caregiver. We have more than just the mother as the caregiver. That's what we are as a human species. So because we have allo parenting, you can have several different kinds of attachment, which just from a scientific point of view is why we say attachment strategies or adaptations, we don't like to call them styles, Attachment, attachment states of mind is the formal term, you know, are specific to a relationship for a young child and they can have many relationships. Now, here's what happens in adolescence. We can study the attachment of an adolescent through something called the adult attachment interview. Mm. And then it's condensed into one strategy. Mm. So somewhere in adolescence, we believe, this might be an, just a side effect of the way we do the research, but we believe that the process of adolescence, you kind of settle in, um, likely the largest influence will be you settle into the way you were with the, the attachment figure with whom you spent the most time. Yeah. But as a clinician, I can tell you it's a little more complicated than the research necessarily has to reduce it to, to do their statistical analyses. And as a, a researcher, you know, I'm always looking for how an adolescent or young adult or more um, mature adult has kept those different attachment patterns. Some of them may have gone underground a little bit into different aspects of the person. 
Um, others may be more dominant. Some may be more present, like in the work environment, mm -hmm. and others come out with a romantic relationship, mm -hmm. and yet others still come out as their parents. Mm -hmm. So when you're a clinician, you know, even though if you're trained, like I am as a scientist in this area, you realize every individual is a multitude of facets of who they are. Some people would say it's, you know, components or personality parts, or I call them self-states or whatever you call them. It's all the same thing. It's been talked about for years. The idea that we have different, you know, layers to our diamond, you know, different edges to it. And, and so as a clinician, you really want to say, well, how was that relationship with your grandmother where you were secure with her, but avoidant with your father and maybe disorganized with your mother? Let's look at disorganization, avoidance, and security and see how you embody those different strategies of adapting um, and how it's affected you and move the overall you into a state of security. That's that's the idea. Mm -hmm. I like that. Um, so I guess I don't know if you could answer this quickly, but what's the difference between attachment science and attachment parenting? So I'm trained in attachment science. I had a National Institute of Mental Health grant to work with Mary Main and had the opportunity to actually be in Virginia where Mary Ainsworth was there. And I worked with Eric Hesse and over the years worked with different people. Um, we recently had a gathering of uh, dozens of um, researchers talk about the future of research in attachment science. That has uh, a huge history behind it. There's a rigorous peer-reviewed process involved in attachment research. There's a whole methodology. And that essentially is completely independent of uh, a field called attachment parenting, which as far as I can tell, does not draw at all on attachment science, only uses the word attachment. Yeah, yeah, hmm. that's what I was gonna say. It just, I mean, well, and part of that is because of some of the things you're talking about, it becomes too cut and dry. There's not, there's not enough language about the individuality of each person or where they came from or what their history was. You'd really have to be in therapeutic relationship with them to mm -hmm. know all those pieces. Well, there's that. And also, you know, I mean, just I don't know that much about attachment parenting, but um, from some friends I have who, who do it, um, what they told me, this may be wrong because I haven't read the direct. Uh, I don't think there's any research on it, but but they've told me that there's a statement that the mother must be the singular attachment figure, which is completely against every study of human attachment. Mm, wow. So even if you just stop there and say, that's plain out wrong. Yeah. And I've had many mothers feel incredibly guilty mm -hmm. that they're trying to have another relative take care of their child or the, mm -hmm. the father or the other mother or, you know, <clears throat> or a nanny or, <coughs> or issues of daycare. So, you know, when you look at the work of um, Sarah Hurdy, H-R-D-Y, and you read this anthropologist's incredible study uh, in a book called Mothers and Others of the science of alloparenting, mm. you come to realize that anyone who says that it's only the mother who should be the caregiver, it, it's a biological error. Mm. And to try to tell people about that is just against everything we've evolved to be. Mm. Mm -hmm. Right? So. Yeah. I'll just stop there. So once someone says that's what it says, I go, 
you know, that's just plain wrong. Yeah. Well, and I think you just helped a lot of people listening decrease some of their guilt because I work with women all the time and there's so much, even if their children are grown, I should have co-slept with them. They should have nursed longer. I should have been there more. And there's a really kind of, they feel like they're the only ones who made an impact. And if they would have done more, it would have been better. So I appreciate what you're saying. Exactly. You know, and we want to look, here's the exciting thing about attachment science is it's actually incredibly empowering yeah. Because we are, we evolved to be collaborative. We evolved to live in community and we evolved to have a sense of self that's much broader than the message you get from contemporary culture, yeah. which is of separation, of competition, of isolation. All these messages you get in social media, um, just from even science, like in my field, you know, psychiatry, it's like, the individual or even the field of psychology or mental health, you know, self-improvement, self-actualization, all this self being seen as a separate entity, you kind of can feel it with the word self, but it's actually a toxic lie. Mm. Mm. And so that's attachment research shows that and anthropology shows that, just studying evolution shows that. So in part, what we need to do is identify the myths that are out there, not just in certain approaches to parenting, but just in our whole society. And you can even see that the climate crisis is due to the myth of the separate self, where humanity thinks that human beings as a species are separated from nature and you know we're just separate and better. And so it doesn't matter if we pollute the air or the water or the forest, or it doesn't matter because you know we're gonna get a lot of toys before we die, so we're gonna win the game. You know, and that mentality of modern society is going to kill humanity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, part of what uh, I try to write in all my books, including the ones I write with Tina on parenting, you know, ultimately have the message that the first teachers are parents. Mm-hmm. And if you just look at, you know, um, Fridays for the future and how the youth are striking every Friday mm-hmm. um, and say, whoa, how I've got a three-year-old at home or a one-year-old at home or, you know, just a, a colleague who was just here, just had a baby, you know, last week, a week, week old person. You know, I think what we need to do collectively as parents and educators and therapists and people in society is wake up to the lie of the separate self mm-hmm. and raise children to realize in, with relief that the self is both within them. They have an inner self, sure. A body, yes, absolutely. Sleep your body well, exercise your body, feed your body, beautiful. That's an inner self. But we need to raise them so they realize the word self has a facet that's inter. Yeah. It's your relationship with other people, even people who are not like you. It's relationship with other species, species that are not human. Mm-hmm. It's a relationship within all of nature, intra-nature self. And I think if we do that, there's really incredible uh, optimism, I feel, that we as a collaborative, community-based species can turn the madness around from these statements you hear in all sorts of fields that are against the, the, the natural way that we are a part of a much larger system uh, that the word self implies. I love that. That's awesome. Um, so if, the way I try to parent my three daughters, and sometimes when we talk to groups of parents, this is kind of what I start with is, 
I feel like, you know, because I'm uh, kind of a mathematical, I see things in math, like I want to dedicate 60% of my resources to modeling the behavior that I want to see in my daughters. I want to dedicate 30% of my resources to not what I say, but how I say it, how I interact, tone of voice, what energy am I interacting with them from? And then the last 10% is what you say. And I feel like the best way for me to kind of follow that formula is for me to take care of myself. And you use in the book an example about trauma. Child, I, I call it baggage, but childhood trauma, just baggage that we got from our parents. Not to say our parents are bad people, but- Or from our history. Or from our history. Um, they passed down baggage to me. And what I, my job as a father is to be able to sift through that and understand myself better so that I don't pass it on to my kids. You use in the book an example of how trauma is like a dog bite. And I yeah. wonder if you can talk about that. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I hope this analogy doesn't get people upset. But, um, you know, as, a, as an educator, of course, you want to find um, ways of uh, communicating things that will be, you know, um, understandable and inspiring and will stay with people. So um, if someone has a, a, an emotional reaction that's negative to this, I want to apologize ahead of time. But it is one that over the course of, you know, teaching of these many years as a, as a therapist working with trauma, this has been helpful. What's the analogy? The analogy is you're walking down the road and a dog comes upon you and bites you on the hand. Now, most people's natural response, if a dog bites you on the hand as you're walking down the road, is to try to get your hand away from the dog. And so what that dog does is he digs his teeth in further. He didn't bite you by accident. He's now digging in, he's got you. So you pull more and you know it really damages the tissue of your hand. And finally, maybe he lets go and now you've gotta go get some major, major surgery to repair this as best you can, this damage to your hand. So the analogy is that when people are traumatized, they try to pull away from the trauma because they don't want to think about it they think it's too much or whatever but when you take the analogy to the next step you go well what should i do if you know this unfortunately might happen to me today if you're walking down the road and a dog bites you on the hand even though your natural response is to pull away do just the opposite shove your hand down the throat of that dog go right toward what attacked you now, when you do that, the dog has a gag reflex and you shove your hand down his throat. He opens up his teeth because you're making him gag. You pull your hand out. Sure, you have a few puncture marks, but they easily, when they're cleaned up, heal no problem. No hospital visit needed necessarily. You're just going to wash it off, maybe get some antibiotics, but you're going to get healed very nicely. The same thing is true with trauma. You know, with the support sometimes of a therapist or writing in a journal or reading books that are supportive, you want to aim your focus of attention down the throat of trauma with support mm -hmm. so that you can then let it release its bite on you. Mm -hmm. And that's the analogy. And, you know, having been a therapist for all these years, over, you know, 30 years now, you know, the issue is um, how can I be of best support to, um, you know, help someone to look straight at the thing that's bothering them, understanding that they had adaptations mm -hmm. to deal with what happened, that 
kept them surviving, but now we're going to try to reorganize, which unfortunately needs to go through a period of disorganization, and then they come through with reorganization into a, a higher state of being, a, a, a state of well-being that's, that's possible. Go ahead. I'm. I just love that analogy, and it's one. It's just so memorable, and we all have a visual. So I just, you have a knack for taking what I kind of consider not so easy to understand concepts into something very understandable. So thank you for that. One question we get, uh, Dan, is okay. um, we. I'll give you an example. Let's say there's a dad that reaches out to Kathy and I on the podcast, and says, "You know what? I'm doing the safe, seen, soothed, and secure." but my wife comes from a family background where it's got to be tough love and all that other stuff. I just wonder, I'm sure you've gotten that question a million times. How do you address that? Cause I have a hard time with it. It's a great question. And of course it's a common question. Um, and you know, the first thing of course is to always really listen closely to the person asking the question and tune into what their internal experience is in asking the questions. So the first thing I would say is, you know, I hear you and I, I can tell you, you know, you're not alone and I can sense what you and others in this situation feel, which is, you know, concern and frustration, maybe fear. Um, so let's walk through that, acknowledging what you're feeling right now. So that's the first way you can start. The next thing is to say that, you know, kids do have what's called alloparenting in their evolutionary history. So they are capable of having different attachments to different attachment figures. So the first thing to do is make sure your self-understanding is as open and coherent as possible so that you can provide for your kid a secure relationship. They're seen, they're soothed, they're safe. Okay, fine. Now we're talking about your relationship with your spouse or your partner, the co-parent, and that parent's relationship with your child that you're sharing. So then I would say, so whether it's parenting from the inside out that I wrote with Mary Hartzell or, you know, The Power of Showing Up with Tina Payne Bryson, you have these books that are all about attachment. Uh, inside Out is really when Mary you know, bless her soul. She passed recently. When Mary and I were um, writing that book, actually in this very room here, uh, you know, I remember her right there. Um, you know, it was saying, how can we take her decades of being a preschool uh, director and uh, and a parenting educator uh, with my the work I was doing, you know, with interpersonal neurobiology and you know, all this stuff, whatever. Um, and, and, and make it like one big hug for parents. So in this case, the hug would be to say, start with yourself with self-understanding and then understand what this way your partner is, how she or he is behaving is affecting you. So you wanna stay as present as possible, not like you're doing it wrong, this is terrible. No, really understand that most people are doing the best they can. They really are. Mm -hmm. And if you start with that strategy, it usually takes you in a very good path. Mm -hmm. Now, the next thing to say is, okay, we're going to read parenting from the inside out together. And your partner goes, I'm not going to do that. And you go, why not? Because this is a book that's like one big hug and we can do this together. We'll get closer together and let's see what it says. Mm -hmm. 
Now, if a parent resists reading inside out or reading, you know, showing up, you got to you got to really question that as a partner. Like they're not interested in more knowledge. They're not interested in more wisdom, more insight. So then that becomes a topic of conversation, not even the book itself, which they're not reading, but why they're not reading the book. And, you know, what we try to say in both those books is, do you love your child enough to really explore with curiosity, openness, acceptance, and love your own journey, you know, and how these S's, you know, being seen was a part of your life or, you know, being safe or being soothed are a part of your life. This is, you know, a way you can really start the conversation with your partner. Now, they still may not open the book, but now you've engaged them saying, this not opening the book is an issue that is related to exactly what we're doing, you know? Yeah. So then you go, okay, well, I get that. I get that. I can really try to then work with you as my partner around these issues. So now you go, um, all right, well, um, so let me see why I'm not willing to open the book with you. And now you've started a conversation. That conversation should all be about questions. You don't, yeah, I would say to this person, you don't have to come up with proclamations of what the truth is or what the not truth is. You can make this all about questions and explorations and loving inquiry. And that's where it's different from attacking someone saying, I read this book and, you know, Dan and Tina say this or that, or Dan and Mary say that and that, and you're not doing it. You're not good because everyone's doing the best they can. And so let's say the parent isn't tuning in to the child. A lot of times, let's say that's an avoidant history in their own childhood that turned into what's called a dismissing attitude in adults. The compassionate approach to this is to say in yourself as the partner, when this person was a kid, mm. there was so much loneliness mm. and so many needs for being hugged, for being soothed when you're distressed, for being understood, you know, that the adaptation to the absence of those ways the parent the parent could have been present but wasn't and the loneliness this little kid felt led to an adaptation saying i don't need other people mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so so beneath the exterior adaptation i don't need i don't need i don't need and all the research shows this is a deep lower parts of the brain are saying you know i need i need i need but i can't be aware of that need because it'll flood me so now you as the partner you don't jump in and say you're not doing this you know, because that just makes them build a bigger wall. You slowly say, yeah, let's look in this. You know, what was that like? for? I don't remember my childhood, which is classic of dismissing. Yeah. And a dismissing individual is 20% of the population hmm. says, um, you know something? Love is not important and relationships don't matter. Huh. Yeah. So then you go, wow, I hear you. I hear you say love is not important and relationships don't matter. Wow. Um, I hear you saying that. I see you believe it. All I can say inside of me is that kind of makes me feel sad. Mm -hmm. Not you. What do you say? Of course, relationships matter. Of course, love matters. No, you just say, I feel sad. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. Well, you know, so then you, you, you stay with just your own experience. And now you start working this out. Now, 
interestingly, when you go inside the brain of that parent, I think, and I've written a lot about this in the books, and it's you have to always be careful of oversimplifying things, but if you look at the left side of the brain and stay with the deep, deep science about that, not recent science, which says, oh, left and right are the same. Well, they're not the same. Right. If you look at the deep science, so I know this is controversial in neuroscience, but I'm willing to take a stance on it as a physician being trained in neurology, for example, mm -hmm. or you know, having colleagues of mine who are willing to take a stance in this because it's politically incorrect anymore. Mm -hmm. But on the left side of the brain, you have left less input from the body and the raw experience of emotion comes from the body, like a longing in your heart to be loved or feeling your gut, something's missing. Those things come up to the right side of the brain. Mm -hmm. So if I'm a kid, and I'm getting that flooding feeling, I'm gonna to escape to my left side so I don't feel anything. Mm, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? And now with the rationalization of my left, I say things like, well, um, relationships and love don't matter. And interestingly, in the right side of my brain, I have a dominance in autobiographical memory. And one of the classic things a dismissing state of mind person says is, I don't remember my childhood. I have all the facts, which are left brain, but none of the Emotion. emotional autobiographical <laughs> memories of myself and experience of my past. So it fits the data. We don't have complete research to absolutely support it or prove it by any means. But clinically, I can tell you this frame works so well because then what you want to do as the partner of that person, if it's avoidance and dismissing is what you're working with, is say, you know, it would really help me at this moment when you say love doesn't matter. And I hear those words coming out of your mind. And, you know, I, I know each of us have two sides of our brain. And I feel like those words are really coming out of your left side of your brain. And I get it. But I wonder what would happen right now if you just focus your attention on your heart in your chest. And just took a moment to just be with the feelings in your body. Mm -hmm. Now, if you can do it in a loving, supportive way like that, and this is what I would do as a therapist, mm -hmm. or you know, if you could, you can do it as a spouse if you're really loving about it, not condemning. Mm -hmm. What can sometimes happen now is you've invited a left brain strategy to shift over to the right. The heart has not disappeared, mm. and the person is now being invited to just open awareness to the right hemisphere, become present for that mm -hmm. in their right side, the signals of the heart, the intestines, all these raw emotions come first to the right. And now the person starts to get teary. Mm. Now their left brain becomes aware of the tears, becomes aware of the vulnerability and says, this is stupid. Mm. But you had like three seconds yeah. of a glimpse into that. And you as a partner should not go, aha, I got you being vulnerable. See, you are a real human being with feelings. No, do not do that. Do not do that. <laughs> Even though you may be tempted to, what you want to do is take a deep breath and go, ah. And with your own right hemisphere, you want to connect with their right hemisphere. And you don't need to say anything about it. Like, see, see how emotional you can be. Because here's the bottom line. The left hemisphere in its factual, non-emotional, non-body-based way is trying to 
avoid vulnerability, avoid the tenderness of, I need you for me to feel seen and soothed. It, it, it never happened when they were kids. Yeah. So they've got to withdraw into this left brain, I think, strategy that's dominant there that says, I don't feel anything. I don't really remember much. And I don't need anything. <laughs> I can do it on my own. And then when they treat their child like that, in many ways, the child's vulnerability increases their left brain strategy mm -hmm. because they see in their child the vulnerability that we all have that they cannot tolerate in themselves. And so they more intensely dismiss it. Exactly. Mm. And so this is where, you know, even for this 20% of the population, um, I mean, I give it in a, in a book called Mindsight, I, I talk about a 92 year old who mm -hmm. had this state of mind and, you know, the, you can see that what happened in his therapy sessions, but this frame of the left brain, right brain stuff became extremely helpful for this, you know, robust, feisty 92 year old to do the work he needed to do to become more integrated. And so he could actually have a closer relationship with his wife, his, his kids and his great grandkids even. Mm -hmm. hmm. I love that. Um, I love, I, there's so many things you said. I like wish I was like writing them all down, but I going like way back to calling parenting from the inside out a big hug is yeah. so true. That was like my favorite book in graduate school and it's still on my shelf. It's just the book makes me feel good. Just looking. Oh, that's it. nice. Yeah. Like they, it had energy, you know? So you want to would have, Mary would have loved that. I mean, yeah, you know, we, neither of us was really, uh, I'd written the developing mind as a, you know, as a textbook and, Neither of us was particularly interested in taking the time to write a book. She was really busy. I was really busy. And, and in our workshops, people you know, felt so held by Mary, especially, and, and, and felt intrigued by the combination of the work together, you know, that they said, please turn it into a book, turn it into a book. So we said, oh, come on, there's got to be a book like this out there. We looked no. at every parenting book. There was nothing like there's that. There's nothing still nothing like that, like that out there. Nope. So, and I told Tina, you know, uh, years after Inside Out was written, I said, I said, you know, when we, she started raising her kids with these kinds of uh, strategies and I said to her, I said, you know, I would never, ever have written another parenting book if I hadn't written that one first with Mary, mm -hmm. because the research is really clear. As you mentioned in the beginning of our conversation today, you know, the absolute number one predictor of the kind of attachment your child will have with you is how you've come to make sense of your life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's what Mary Hartzell and I wrote in Parenting from the Inside Out. And, um, you know, and so all the books that Tina and I write, Whole Brain Child, you know, No Drama Discipline, Yes Brain, The Power, the power of Showing Up, all those essentially follow Parenting from the Inside Out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like and, the foundation. Uh, it's the foundation. And I never would write these other books if that book, uh, didn't exist somehow. And, you know, Mary and I wrote it, but you know, whoever wrote it, it's, it, it's an essential starting place. Yeah. And even in its 10th anniversary edition, I mean, there's, it, it's still, even now it still holds up all the science, mm -hmm. um, which I've just reviewed now, thousands of articles I reviewed, all the science still affirms what we just said. Exactly. If you want to help your kids start with self-understanding by exploring that. And the only book I know that lets you do that 
guides you through it like a big hug is parenting from the inside out. I love it. Um, so we have five minutes left and I have a whole bunch of questions that I'm not going to get to. So I'm going to be, I hope I didn't go too long on those. No, 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 my gosh. Um, I'm, you know, I get, I get overwhelmed my enthusiasm about this topic. It's so, you know, so great. No, that's, that's not what I meant. It it just meant that, um, that he loved your book. Yes. So, um, this is more selfish. Kathy and I do workshops. Kathy and I do a lot of things where we invite our listeners to show up. And this is, I work with men quite often. And uh, we did a screening of the movie called The Mask You Live In. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's an interesting movie about healthy masculinity. And we marketed it to the dads. We said, bring your teenage sons. And we had 300 people in the theater and 85% of the people were women. And I am personally having a hard time getting the men to come out. And I, I made it part of my vocation to do that. My first question is, Dr. Siegel, does that happen to you when you're speaking to people? And if so, what can we do to get the men to show up in, in, in better informing themselves? You know, it's a really great question. And the answer, you know, that my wife, Caroline, um, always notices is the majority of people that come are, are, are women. You know, she just wrote a beautiful book called uh, The Gift of Presence, A Mindfulness Guide for Women. So she's going right for the women. And her joke was, you know, okay, now you need to write a book called The Mindful Man or something like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, so this may be exactly what your question is. Um, so let's let's unpeel that a little bit. I mean, there is a message in our society that you're supposed to be like uh, um, invincible and strong and not with feelings and stuff like that. And I'll give you just one little example to support exactly what you're saying. Before our, um, gosh, I can't, yeah, it must've been our first child who's now 30. (laughs) Before he was born, um, we were in a hypnosis and birthing class, you know? And uh, so the women had been doing their hypnosis. They were like, you know, getting ready to do childbirth, uh, the natural way and it was all beautiful and great and wonderful and the men it, we, we had a whole like day-long workshop where the women were in one group and the men were in another group so the so the question came up like um what what concern do you have so it was going around the group of men so i said well you know i'm concerned that you know um i worked so hard to find a partner my wife caroline you know who could meet my emotional needs and it's been absolutely amazing these five years we've been married. It's just been like a dream come true that, you know, I feel seen and safe and soothed and all that stuff. Um, and it's absolutely beautiful. I'm just kind of concerned that now that we're about to have a child, she's going to use those same capacities for our child, our son, you know, which is great. But I feel like I'm going to become invisible again, like in my childhood. So I take a deep breath, you know, having really expressed this vulnerability I felt in this concern. And then one of the guys, a a guy who actually owned a construction company, a builder, he goes, dude, he goes, is this a planned pregnancy? I don't think you're at all ready to have a child with talk like that. Oh, wow. You know, and it was like, I looked at him and it was like this, uh, I didn't want to act like a therapist, even though I, I was a therapist at the time, you know, so I just looked at him. I said, well, yeah, actually, we deeply planned this. And I think it's OK to talk about vulnerable feelings. 
you know, mm -hmm. and he just like brushed me off, like, you're absolutely not ready. So, I mean, that's just an example mm -hmm. of a kind of attitude that, you know, being in touch with needs to be cared for mm -hmm. with the tender need for dependency and, you know, to rely on others and to feel like you're not in control and you can have emotions that one of the ways when you separate out emotion from thought, even though they're usually woven together, but one of the ways, if you're just thinking like this dude did, uh, tell me you're not ready to have a child, you know, um, one of the ways to understand that is a thought process like that, a logical sequence called a thought can be so devoid of vulnerability because mm -hmm. it's wrapped up in this illusion of logical consistency, you know? Um, and it's like this uh, quote that we were with our 25 year old daughter in uh, Brooklyn where she lives. Um, and we were all hanging out with the day. It was absolutely beautiful, but we went to the Brooklyn library and there's a great quote on the, uh, the entryway, the foyer from an artist. And it says something like coming to understand the flimsy fantasy of certainty, comma, I let myself wander. So part of letting yourself wander is to say, certainty is a flimsy fantasy. When you embrace the reality of uncertainty, you have what you could simply call presence. So all of this comes down to that one word, presence. Parental presence means you realize yeah, there's a child part of me that wants my spouse to take care of me, and maybe I'll feel jealous if he or she is doing that for my child. I got to own that jealousy, not ignore it, not deny it. Um, you know, I got to realize that in presence, if I'm an ex, you know, a uh, person with a lot of exterior energy, and I have a very inward, quiet person, I may be frustrated and irritated. I got to own that to be fully present for my child. Um, if I'm going to be fully present, I embrace the flimsy fantasy of certainty and I realize I can't be certain of anything. The only thing I can be is more like a verb. I can be fully present for the unfolding of experience and come at it with deep curiosity, openness, acceptance, and love. This cold acronym that my mother in particular loves, you know, and I'll just quote my mom one more time who's 90 now. You know, I said, mom, you know, What's mindfulness to you? You know, because she was just interviewed by Caroline for the book. She goes, mindfulness is not only that coal acronym, you know, curious, open, acceptance, love. She goes, but I've come to realize mindfulness is where things that used to annoy you now amuse you. Yeah. And I thought that's like the most awesome definition of presence, you know, where you, you drop your demands and expectations, you open up to the incredible privilege of being alive and the incredible privilege of raising children, Yeah, you know, and then they're your main teachers because you're present for them. And that's the whole issue of presence, whether it's, you know, women facing all the issues in society that demean women and how to be present for it. So we can work together to change that or present for your child in all the ways that are incredible privileges of really helping them grow up into the world and also being present for the reality of what our climate crisis and social injustice tells us, which is we've ignored the reality of interconnection. And when you really drop into presence, you come to realize the reality of our interrelatedness. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, you can raise your child with resilience and their preparation, their proper preparation from your home 
to really be fully present in the world mm, with love and compassion. That's a great way to end it. The name of the book is The Power of Showing Up, How Parental Presence Shapes Who Our Kids Become and How Their Brain Gets Wired. Uh, Dr. Siegel, there's an open invitation for you ever, if you ever want to come back, because I got a lot of other stuff for you. pages. But no, you've really you know, made a tremendous impact on the work we do and what we've been able to teach has been a lot because of your research and your books. So just thanks for doing what you do and being out there. We you know, honor your work. Thank you, Dr. Thank, Siegel. Thank you so much. I hope this new book, The Power of Showing Up, you know, what Tina Payne Bryce and I wanted to do is take the lessons of self-understanding and say, okay, how do you take that presence and turn it into specific kinds of parenting uh, actions that allow presence to be manifested in this loving and health-promoting way. So thanks for, for supporting uh, the ideas, and thank you for all the work you do. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Siegel. We'll catch you next time. A pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Remember to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And feel free to leave a five-star review on iTunes. It helps people find us. Also subscribe and review our Pop Culturing Podcast, a Gen X viewpoint on movies and TV with an emphasis on personal growth and self-awareness. It's basically the flip side of Zen Parenting Radio. Do you want more Zen Parenting? Check out our third podcast, otherwise known as Team Zen. One of our team members described it as an advice column meets group help meets like-minded community. With your $25 subscription, you get two live Zen talks with an opportunity to ask us live questions, plus a Facebook community where you can interact or just listen to like-minded parents. If you can't join us live, you can still access all the Zen talks through the Team Zen podcast app. Zen Parenting Conference 2020 is February 28th and 29th. We'll be discussing sex ed, gender, anxiety, neurodiversity, and healthy relationships. Go to zenparentingconference.com to get your tickets. Interested in inviting us to speak at your conference or organization? Go to zenparentingradio.com and submit a speaker request. And while you're there, check out our upcoming events or you can purchase one of my three books. If you ever shop via Amazon, you can help us out by first going through the Amazon link under the Support Us link on our homepage. It doesn't cost anything to you, but we get a small commission from Amazon. And guys, I have a one-on-one coaching practice. It's called Coaching for Guys. You want to achieve a better work-life balance or deepen your relationships with loved ones? We can talk in person, phone, FaceTime, you choose. And don't forget about Tribe Men's Group. We have a virtual community from men all over the world. Head on over to tribemensgroup.org or shoot me an email at Todd at ZenParentingRadio.com. It's an opportunity for guys to come together and talk about what really matters. Finally, I want to give a special thanks to our founding partner, Jeremy Kraft. He's a bald head of beauty, and the company he has is Avid. They do painting and remodeling throughout the Chicagoland area. Go to avidco.net or give him a call at 630-956-1800. Thanks for all your love and support, and keep on trucking. Mm-hmm.